Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Battleground with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. We're returning again to the subject of Gaza, which is looming so large in everyone's minds today. Several listeners to the podcast have asked us to try and explain what are the forces that lie behind this apparently endless conflict, now over 100 years old. Why is the bitterness on both sides so intense and how is it that a solution seems so difficult to find? Well, as it happens, both Saul and I have written books which shed some light on both these questions, and we're going to be talking about them today. History may not help us predict the future, but it's the only means we have of understanding the present. And history is a very rich and explosive component in what's going on in Israel and Gaza today. The subjects of both books, we believe, tell us quite a lot about the underlying causes of the conflict and the mindset of the protagonists, and particularly the Israelis. Patrick's book, The Reckoning, Death and Intrigue in the Promised Land, came out about a decade ago to wide acclaim and is the story of the hunt for Abraham Stern, leader of an ultra-nationalist Jewish armed group fighting to drive the British out of Palestine, and his capture and very controversial shooting by a British detective in 1942. And Saul is the author of Operation Thunderbolt, Flight 139 and the Raid on Entebbe Airport, the most audacious hostage rescue mission in history, which describes the 1976 Israeli counter-terrorist operation to rescue civilian passengers hijacked by Palestinians while on a flight from Tel Aviv to Paris. It came out six years ago and was also highly praised as well as being made into a movie. So let's start with the reckoning, shall we, Patrick? Tell us a little bit about the storyline. Well, it focuses very much on, on, on this event in February 1942, uh, when Abraham Stern was shot dead in a shabby rooftop flat in Tel Aviv. And Stern was 34 years old then, a charismatic figure, a poet. He could have been a brilliant academic, but he was at that point the most wanted man in Palestine with a, a reward on his head posters 
up all around town offering this reward if for someone to turn him in. Uh, now, of course, this is in Tel Aviv. This is under British rule then, under the so-called mandate. Now, Stern gave his name to what the British call the Stern Gang, which had carried out uh, some bank robberies in order to fund their activities, uh, which included killing Jews, Arabs, and British policemen. Now, their the motive was political to drive out the British, and Stern was prepared to go to any lengths to achieve it, including trying to make deals with the Nazis and the Italian fascists, then, of course, fighting the British, and offering their services as a fifth column for them in Palestine. Now, the guy who shot Stern was a British detective called Geoffrey Morton uh, of the Palestine Police Force. He and Stern had a, a personal vendetta going. Uh, Morton blamed Stern for the death of a very close friend and fellow policeman. Now, Mort was a very good detective and uh, quite a thoughtful and civilized human being, but there was no doubt that uh, this was really a blood feud between him and Stern. It was intensely personal, and the circumstances of the killing were highly controversial, with many Jews believing Morton had shot Stern in cold blood. Now, the reason I sort of focused on this story was, A, it's a, it's a brilliant kind of you know human drama. It's a great detective story. The two characters are incredibly compelling. They're quite similar to each other in some ways. They're both driven. They're both very self-righteous. But the, the political aspects of the story, the historical aspects of the story, are also very revealing, I think, about the whole very, very complicated politics of Palestine at that time. Um, and just one aspect of it, which shows you how quickly things can change, and I think this is a trope we see a lot of, in these kind of stories, you know, liberation struggle type stories. So when Stern was shot, uh, he was, you know, regarded widely as a as a terrorist, even by his own people, by the by the Jewish community of Palestine, who regarded him as a sort of embarrassment to their cause. And Morton, conversely, on the British side, was seen as a hero, someone who's taken out of the off the board, someone who's you know quite a serious nuisance while they're trying to fight a war against the Germans. But the circumstances of the death changed things very quickly. All this sort of murky, what actually happened? Did Morton shoot Stern in cold blood? Changes the, the whole dynamic of the thing quite quickly. So the, the Jewish community in Palestine, known as the Yishuv, they stopped seeing uh, Stern as you know, sharing the British view of him as essentially a terrorist. And he starts to become a martyr to Zionism. Morton, meanwhile, goes from hero to zero. So instead of being the kind of the guy who solved the problem, uh, he becomes a political embarrassment, and he's very soon posted away from uh, Palestine to a sort of obscure colonial backwater uh, by the British authorities to try and calm things down. So it's, you know, there's, there's lots of sort of great dramatic elements in there, but there's also a hell of a lot that tells us about the motivations and the passions that are ruling in this already well-established conflict. So tell us a little bit about Stern, Patrick. He sounds like quite a piece of work. I mean, it obviously depends on which side of the political divide you're on, um, from the British perspective and the Arab, for that matter, and indeed the sort of liberal Jewish perspective. He's, uh, you know, he's a ruthless terrorist, isn't he? But for, of course, the hardline Zionists, as you say, he's a hero. But what's his background? I mean, was he born in Palestine? No, like a lot of people who were there at the time, he was born in Europe. You know, he was born in, in, a, in a small town called Sowelki uh, up in Poland, northeastern Poland. Now, Sowelki is a, is a very Jewish, had a very big Jewish population uh, when he was born there in 1907. And it, in a way, it's a sort of microcosm of for how Zionism developed. Zionism, of course, being the political movement, and it's sort of also, there is religious Zionism as well. 
which is that the Jews should have their own nation uh, run along Jewish lines, essentially, a Jewish state with boundaries like any other state. And this this was a kind of, you know, there were there was historical Zionism, but the movement really took off at the end of the 19th century. Uh, the writings of Theodor Herzl, who was a Austro-Hungarian journalist and political activist, he wrote a book, which Judenstadt, the Jewish state, which called for exactly this. Now, you know, if you were a Jew uh, living in the kind of central strip where most Jews in Europe, in Europe were found in the any time from the Middle Ages onwards. You were basically living under a sort of some degree of persecution from whatever state you happened to find yourself in. The borders were constantly shifting the whole time. And mostly the reaction to this had been a sort of spirit of resignation, of just getting on with things, trying to make your life, trying to keep your community together and just enduring, enduring. But what Zionism told Jews was, no, you don't have to do this. You can stand up, stand up for your own rights, stand up for yourself, stop being subservient, stop being passive. And this movement took many forms. It was largely sort of left by the time that it really became popular. It was closely allied with sort of left-wing current uh, socialist sort of ideas. So it was this kind of nationalist movement in one sense that it wanted to create a Jewish state, where was the big question? And on the other, it, it was the state would be, it was agreed largely uh, founded along sort of left-wing lines. So that was the atmosphere he grew up in. And um, just to be specific about what sort of life the Jews led was, you know, th this sort of discrimination was interspersed with, with pogroms, with actual violence where the local population would sort of turn against the Jews for some reason or another, often sort of egged on by sort of nationalists or indeed the Catholic, uh, fiery Catholic preachers, etc. So all this told the Zionists that we've got to have a land of our own. We've got to be like other Europeans. We can never assimilate. We can never actually get over this. We're always going to be suffering some degree of persecution. So the only solution to this is to find our own land. So this was the atmosphere that, that Stern grew up in. He was a precocious young man. He was very clever. He loved acting. He was a bit of a show-off, a bit of a dandy. He loved sort of wearing fine clothes. Um, but he was definitely, he had from an early age, you know, his charisma was recognized. He had a very, very compelling personality. And he was uh, taken up with all this sort of spirit of, of Zionism and in 1925 emigrated to Palestine. So let's put it into context a little bit, shall we, Patrick? Uh, although, just as a quick aside, I seem to recall that Herzl's suggestions for a possible Jewish state were both Palestine, which of course is the obvious one, but also Argentina. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of poss possibilities floated around. Uh, essentially, it was trying to find somewhere where there wouldn't be a an immediate sort of problem with the existing people, which is something that we'll come on to uh, in, in a moment or two. But yeah, I mean, basically, the idea took hold. And then the question was the practical one of, of finding this territory where where you know, new Israel could be born, if you like. I mean, I do find uh, the choice of Argentina quite ironic, given that that's where a lot of the uh, senior Nazis eventually ended up at the end of the Second World War as they uh, moved along the kind of rat lines to escape Europe and and set up, uh, you know, uh, not, not a Nazi state in South America, but certainly assisting some of the dictators over there with, their, with the methods that they were able to bring from Central Europe, a pretty grim story. But that as an aside, I mean, let's talk 
talk about a little bit about the context of where this homeland or this Jewish state might be. And of course, the next crucial moment is the Balfour Declaration of 1917, Arthur Balfour, of course, being the British Foreign Secretary, who makes this really game-changing announcement that the British government will support the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine uh, with some, you know, interesting provisos, of course, and that is that this will in no way be to the detriment of the, you know, the indigenous population or their religion. And of course, that's effectively the Palestinian Arabs. Very easy to say, but I think the term homeland is quite interesting, isn't it? Because I don't think it was ever intended to be a separate Jewish state alongside an Arab state at this point. Well, this is really, the Belfort Declaration is really the, as you say, it's the game changer. It's also the kind of original sin of the whole story because when Belfort made his declaration, he was a genuine Zionist. He you know, sympathized with, with the Jewish plight, um, but it was quite a cynical uh, document in some ways. It was, it was endless kind of speculation about what were, his, what were the real kind of rail politic motives behind it. But anyway, this was done in November 1917 when, of course, the war was still being fought. So at that point, you know, this is just a piece of paper. It doesn't actually, you know, the British haven't got any say in the matter. The Ottoman Empire still uh, controls those territories, the sort of Levant as it was then known. Now the problem, so as you rightly say, it says, uh, the words say that this, the British government views with favour the, the establishment of a homeland for the Jews, but at the same time in, in Palestine. But it also says that this creation of a homeland should do nothing which may prejudice the civil rights of existing non-Jewish communities. Uh, and of course, that's uh, the Arabs, mostly Muslim, but uh, some Christians as well, who who live there. So, But at the same time, the British are handing out quite a lot of uh, promises uh, and declarations all over the place, one of which is to the Arabs. Now, they've, they've encouraged the Arabs to rise up against their Ottoman rulers. Uh, the Ottomans, of course, are allied to the uh, Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, so they're going to be uh, end up on the losing side of this war. So the Arabs um, duly do this, and the promise they've been given is that uh, when they succeed, they will then get independence in the lands uh, which they occupy, which hitherto had been ruled by the Ottoman Empire. So they're holding a piece of paper with a promise on it as well. Uh, of course, the war comes to an end, and uh, all these promises start looking a bit problematical for the Brits. In 1920, the League of Nations gives uh, the territories uh, to both France and Britain. Britain gets the mandate for Palestine, and that's when the trouble begins. So in 1920, uh, the Arabs see that the British promises are worthless. They see lots of, of, of Jewish immigration as a result of the Belfort Declaration, and so they start to attack uh, Jews in rural villages, but also in um, in Jerusalem itself. So this is really the start of the cycle of violence that we see going on endlessly to this very day of of attack, reprisal, attack, reprisal, then a big war, in fact, three big wars in the um, post-1948 period when Arab states join in on the side of the Palestinians to try and eradicate Israel altogether. So this is where the whole terrible story begins and this is this is the um uh, the atmosphere that this book of mine is uh, set against this is the background in which it takes place sorry just to go back to when we're talking about the um the arabs i just should have referenced lawrence of arabia you know of course which the uh, the man who is doing most uh, to encourage the arabs you know very sincerely 
to to rise up and say to them, look, you know, at the end of it, uh, you, you will get your your own freedom, your own independence. So uh, that's something listeners will remember. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning, isn't it, Patrick, that the British Foreign Office had at the time, and you know, arguably did for many years afterwards, you know, quite a strong preference for. Arabs over over Jews. I mean, they, you know, this this has been sort of quite a controversial element, hasn't it? It's, and yet, at the same time, the Balfour Declaration came out of a British Foreign Secretary. So you always had this this tension, even within British politics and British diplomacy, between who you support in the in the Middle East. Now, let's talk a little bit about Arab nationalism, because clearly, the Balfour Declaration and the the promise, or at least the suggestion of a Jewish homeland, is going to provoke a reaction from the other side. So how developed was it within Palestine? Well, you know, there were Arab nationalist movements all over the Arab world. Some of them were pan-Arabists, saying we're all Arabs together, you know, let's have a sort of united Arab sort of community, political entity that unites us all. And then there are specific ones in, depending on you know, the kind of tribal essentially makeup of the particular area you're talking about. So but in Palestine, it wasn't particularly well developed. This is this is an argument that Zionists often made, saying that there wasn't such a thing as Palestine, really. This is a sort of invention that they've come up with subsequently. But I think all you can do is actually look at what what happened, and so you you, you do see genuine fear and resentment from the beginning of large scale Jewish immigration into Palestine from 1920 onwards, and it's la- it's largely to do with land, like I've said before, you know, it really comes down to the fact that the uh, European Jews come in, they're funded, uh, they've got money to buy up land. Of course, you know, the land is being sold to them by Arabs. So, you know, in a way, the the Arabs are colluding with the creation of ever more kind of real uh, notion of, of a of an Israeli or Jewish state, rather, as it was then. But it does develop as immigration certainly stimulates the growth of a Palestinian national identity and the idea of a Palestinian state. So by the time you get to 1936, Arab resentment has reached the point where they actually rise up in a more organized way. It's the start of the of the Arab uprising or the Palestinian Arab uprising against British rule. Its two, it's two aims are to stop Israeli immigration and to end British rule and to establish a Palestinian state. So it's growing the whole time. And so you know, the continuing friction and violence between uh, Jews and Arabs in Palestine has given birth to something which is undoubtedly a, a Palestinian identity. And by 1948, you get this actually recognized by the United Nations, post-war United Nations, which try unsuccessfully uh, to come up with a plan which will actually divide the land, again, always comes back to land, always comes back to territory, uh, into two viable states. Neither side can accept it. And that's the uh, the start of uh, the next cycle of more large-scale violence. But you've got basically intercommunal secular violence up until this point. After that, it develops into full-scale wars. Yeah, I mean, you can see why the the UN plan was completely unacceptable to a lot of Palestinian Arabs at the time. And indeed, it was voted down by all the neighbouring Arab countries, although it passed the overall vote. But is it not the case, though, Patrick, that the Jews, uh, or at least the majority of Jews in Palestine at that time, were happy with that arrangement? It was the it was the Arabs who were not. And it actually, if you look at the boundaries drawn between the what would have been the state of Israel under the UN plan, it's actually smaller than the current Israel. So 
the refusal of the Palestinian Arabs and, of course, the surrounding Arab countries to accept that arrangement that had been uh, imposed by the UN actually was counterproductive, I suppose you could say in one sense, because it's meant that uh, Israel today is greater than it would have been under those original boundaries. But the Arabs, of course, would say as a, as a counter-argument, well, we didn't want the existence of a Jewish state in the first place. So, you know, that's the principle under which we were objecting. Well, this is the problem is that, that you get this, uh, you know, very entrenched views on either side. You can say, you know, you could flip the thing and say, well, as the incoming, um, you know, colonizing power, essentially, uh, then, you know, of course, the nascent, you know, the Jewish population about to become the Israeli nation will take take that because it's a pretty good deal you know so the, the, these that, that's why the this conflict is so kind of passionate it's because everyone really really believes in the righteousness of their own cause and th- this of course makes it all the more difficult for there to be uh, an arrangement which, which as an outsider as a non-participant in the struggle that you feel, you know, seems pretty reasonable. Um, but reason doesn't play a huge amount of part in this. Now, I just want to get back to something about which will relate to what you're going to talk about later, Saul, which is the way that I think everyone should ought to bear in mind that this that Zionism comes with an element of creating a sort of new Jew, uh, someone who's not subservient, someone who's not going to just take uh, endless you know, discrimination and abuse lying down. And so this is actually born in this period when when Stern, just after, before Stern arrives there, and Stern's sort of progress, Stern's development says quite a lot about what this this development actually means. So 1920, when the first Arab riots against the um, the incoming Jewish settlers begin, well, the Jews turn around and say to each other, well, you know, we've got to defend ourselves. This is what we're, we're, we're Europeans. We don't just, we can be soldiers. And so they start the first military movement, Haganah, which is there to essentially defend the the settlers against future potential Arab attacks, which of course then come. Now, when the next one comes in 1929, uh, they don't perform particularly well. So you get a, a break-off movement called Irgun uh, Svai Leumi, which is saying, look, you know, we've got to be tougher, we've got to be harder. And then that in turn splits in 1940, which is where Stern comes in, when he says, look, you know, the, even the ear gun are, are not really following the, the plot. They've now joined up with the Brits. They're going to go off and fight the bigger enemy, the Germans. But, you know, you're losing focus here. What we really need to do is, is get rid of the Brits. And also, it must be said, the Arabs, a lot of their violence is directed just against Arabs because they're Arabs. So you get this continual hardening of political opinion. At that time, the political consensus in, in among the yeshuv, that is the, the Jewish population of Palestine, is pretty much left-wing. And the left have a sort of um, dominance, even a hegemony, over politics uh, up until the 1970s. So you get this drift, this steady drift from the left, very idealistic, to increasingly nationalistic right. And Stern is very much a sort of uh, a forerunner of, of this trend, which we now see in the coalition government in Israel, where, you know, three of the seven parties, I think, can be accurately and fairly described as very right wing. And that's a general trend, of course, which again leads to a hardening of positions, which makes negotiations all the more difficult. And of course, you see the same thing on the Palestinian side. So the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank 
represent an old style of politics, which is completely not present uh, since the uh, victory of Hamas back at the beginning of the century in Gaza. And so you've got two competing political traditions there as well. Well, that's all fascinating stuff, Patrick. Uh, And that's all we have time for for this part. Do join us after the break when we'll be taking the story on in a discussion of my book on the Entebbe raid. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back. Well, now we're going to turn the focus to Saul's book, Operation Thunderbolt, which describes an iconic moment in the short history of the Israeli state. It's when an Israeli commando team, led by the brother of the current Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, led an extraordinarily audacious raid to free more than 100 hostages held by Palestinian militants in Entebbe Airport in Uganda. The operation further boosted the reputation of the Israeli military, which was already sky high, following its victory in the 1973 Yom Kippur War, when the IDF defeated the combined forces of an Arab coalition led by Egypt and Syria. Obviously, this story has huge resonance, given the fact that a large number of Israeli captives are being held hostage in Gaza today. Let's start off by asking you, so what happened briefly and how does it relate to today's situation? Well, just very quickly, Patrick, uh, a quick point about the Yom Kippur War. It was, of course, ultimately an Israeli victory, but it caused enormous soul searching in the Israeli nation and certainly in the security forces because it was felt that they had been taken by surprise. And that is a direct comparison with what's just happened in Gaza. There was uh, no 
understanding that this sudden surprise attack was about to happen and it was seen as a real sort of failure of intelligence and a failure of the ability of the military to anticipate this sort of trouble. So there there were obvious similarities and and the Entebbe raid as I'll go on to explain was really a chance to, you know, to come back from that as as one of the people involved in the raid described it before the raid as a result of the Yom Kippur war we were minus 10 and after it we were plus 20. So what happened? Well, on the 27th of June, 1976, uh, an Air France flight 139, I think, took off from uh, Tel Aviv airport uh, and was heading for Paris. But interesting, it stopped off at Athens. And that's important because Athens had pretty poor airport security at that time. And, and that's where the terrorists, a mixture of terrorists, two from the PFLP, that's a popular front for the liberation of Palestine, and their intentions are pretty obvious. But they were also uh, linked up with another group called the Revolutionary Cells, who were German terrorists who, you know, were interested in very leftist kind of ideas, world revolution. And they were in contact with a lot of these other left-wing terrorist groups across the world, including the PFLP. So it's a sort of joint operation between German and Palestinian terrorists. And they get on at Athens with weapons and grenades. It's pretty hard to believe, frankly, that they were able to get through airport security, but they were because it was very poor. And then during the flight from Athens to Paris, they're able to take over the plane, effectively get their weapons out, uh, get into the cockpit and force the French pilot to fly to Libya. Now, this has all been pre-planned. Why do they go to Libya? Well, one, because Gaddafi is sympathetic to their aims, but they're not intending to stay in Libya. It's just really a, a refueling stop because the overall plan is to get all the way to Uganda, Entebbe Airport in Uganda, and that's where they're going to issue their demands. So why do they go to Uganda? Well, Uganda's president at the time was uh, Idi Amin, who had been very closely connected to the Israelis. He'd fallen out with them because they'd refused to give him the sort of weapons and hardware he needed. And he then pivoted into support for the Palestinians, who, through the Russians, were providing some of the kit that Idi Amin needed. And he, of course, had his own sort of regional issues to deal with. That's trouble with Kenya next door and, and various other neighbours. So this was all pre-planned. I mean, it's interesting because at the time, no one knew that Idi Amin was connected to all of this. I was lucky enough to interview one of the terrorists, the German terrorists, that is, comrades, who told me that, yes, it was all pre-planned. So the plane finally lands in Entebbe Airport, and that's where the demands are issued, unless Israel and a number of other countries, in fact, including France and Switzerland, release terrorists uh, from their jails, freedom fighters, as of course they were called by the terrorists on the plane, they are going to start killing the hostages. How many hostages? Well, there were about 250 people on the plane, and roughly half of them were Jewish. And a quite sinister act happens quite early on during this hostage-taking week. I mean, I write the book as a kind of unfolding drama in seven days, from the initial hijacking, which took place on the 27th, to the rescue, which took place on the 4th of July. So you've got seven days in which the Israeli government has to decide what to do about this horrendous situation because the whole point about going as far as Uganda in terms of putting the plane down there is that you've got two things happening. First of all, Idi Amin's own troops are going to protect you against any counterattack from the Israelis. And secondly, it's such a long distance away from Israel that it's going to be almost impossible for them to carry out a counter-terrorist operation, or so the terrorists think. Now, what's similar to the situation today, Patrick, as you mentioned at the beginning, is that, of course, you've got an awful lot of 
Israeli hostages. You've also got other nationalities, but they're released halfway through. And it's quite a, a good little PR stunt by Idi Amin because he says, look, I'm just, you know, I'm just, I, I'm nothing to do with this. I'm just trying to help out. I'm just uh, trying to help with negotiations. And look, I've managed to free all the non-Israelis. Now, if only Israel will agree to do what the terrorists demand, then these other guys can be released too. And and pretty much both uh, Idi Amin and the terrorists are thinking this is a slam dunk. There's absolutely nothing Israel can do. And so going back to the relevance with today, what you've got is a, you know, a horrendous situation for the Israeli government and its military to deal with, which is that a number of its people have been taken hostage. And are they going to be able to free them or will they be forced into a situation in which they've got to release a lot of very dangerous people in their jails? The principle of the Israeli government at that time was on the whole not to do deals with terrorists for obvious reasons. But there was an important proviso. They would not authorize a hostage rescue situation unless there was a very good chance of success. And you can imagine that in the early days, as they begin to look at the difficulties of getting their forces all the way to Entebbe. And bear in mind, one of the key problems they had is that they didn't have a plane that could fly all the way there and all the way back in one go. It had to refuel. So that was one problem, which eventually they overcame. But also there was the other danger that this would be a botched operation and an awful lot of Israelis would lose their lives. But of course, it was you know, brilliant success, wasn't it? And like I say, it did at that point, I think probably the Israeli military uh, having won, you mentioned the Yom Kippur War earlier, uh, it already won the 1967 war, not so long before it had triumphed in the 1948 war. So you know, they, they looked pretty uh, much like the best military outfit in the world, didn't they? Now, this, of course, was at a time when Israel generally was was riding high. So just to go back to the history of the whole thing, I suppose the it, it really was a kind of David and Goliath image, wasn't it, that people had in their minds of little Israel had managed to establish itself in the middle of this very hostile region, fought off three, uh, you know, massed attacks by the surrounding states, plus had dealt with its own problems with Palestinian militants. And and so, you know, its its reputation was was very high. And I think that also was reflected as in a kind of wider admiration for the for Israel in general, wasn't there? I think there was a kind of pretty much global, uh, unless you were kind of really in the Arab world, Israel was regarded as a sort of shining light of democracy in the region with some reason. Now, I'm rambling on a bit here, but what I'm really trying to get at, Saul, is is do you think that those sort of successes and that kind of, in the free world anyway, that the sort of high standing of Israeli society, as well as its, as its army, uh, led to a sort of mindset that might have pushed it towards kind of courses of action that maybe have kind of made life more difficult for it subsequently? Yes, I do think that's uh, that's the case. And I, I, I make that point, or at least I speculate. I don't make that point myself, but I allow people involved in the in the story to make that point. They were very much, uh, there was very much a feeling of ambivalence among some people, particularly the hostages, that this ultimately successful outcome. And just, just a quick aside on the successful outcome. I mean, the Israeli government was tormented during the course of the week that the rescue operation would go horribly wrong. It would lose some of their best people, Sayeret Makkal, which is the Israeli equivalent of the SAS, which was led by 
Bibi Netanyahu's brother, Yoni, uh, a really interesting character, actually, sort of poet warrior. He was uh, Harvard educated and had come back to Israel to serve in the IDF because he felt that, you know, it, it was vital that people like him did their bit to, you know, to protect their nation. And it was an extraordinarily difficult operation. Lots and lots of things could have gone wrong. Even when they landed, so they used these, these Hercules to fly all the way there. And even when they landed, they only had three minutes to carry out the operation because, of course, the fear is that if the terrorists know you're coming, they're going to start killing the hostages. I mean, that, that's always the fear in a hostage rescue situation. It will be a similar preoccupation with the Israeli military at the moment. But ultimately, they did pull it off extraordinarily. And it did give them a sense of almost, you know, a Superman complex. We can pretty much do anything. If someone strikes us in Israel, we can react. And if someone takes our people hostage anywhere around the world, we can respond to that too. And did it give them a kind of sense of, uh, you know, we can deal with the problem of our enemies through the use of intelligence and military force as opposed to coming to some kind of peace deal. Well, we know that the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin uh, later on uh, led very bravely the peace accords uh, with the Palestinians that almost produced some kind of solution. And then tragically, of course, he was assassinated. So you can see this either way. Some of the people involved in, in Tebi think actually know it gave Israel a position of strength from, from which Rabin could negotiate. And on the other hand, you get people who argue that actually, no, it gave their military the, a kind of, you know, an overweening belief that they could deal with any problem in the future. And that ultimately, in the end, they didn't have to make the final sacrifice. And you, you could certainly say that hubris since the moment of Entebbe has occurred to the Israeli military on a number of occasions. And most recently, of course, or one of the most recent occasions was the invasion of Lebanon in 2006, which did not go well. Yeah. I think there's a point we also ought to make here, Saul, isn't there, about the how the military society and civilian society are completely intermeshed, aren't they, in, in Israel? I mean, you, you everyone, man and woman, uh, there are exemptions if you're on the religious, uh, belong to an ultra-religious group. But, you know, most of the civilian population are doing military service, first of all, for a, a proper protracted period in I can't remember exactly when it comes, but you know, sort of between you know, school, high school, and university, and then subsequently you do your miluim, which is your annual. You do annual military service of some nature. Of course, by the time you're in into middle age, you're doing some sort of clerical or you know backroom job. But everyone practically has served in the military, so it's kind of in their DNA, isn't it? Yeah, exactly right. It's a nation of warriors and both male and female, of course. And, you know, and some of the most tragic stories about the, the operation into Israel by Hamas involve uh, the killing of Israeli female soldiers. I mean, you know, one horrendous story about them all huddling in a bunker and the uh, Hamas fighters throwing in grenades and then following up with machine gun fire. But having said that, of course, ha Hamas fighting Israeli military is one thing. Hamas murdering Israeli civilians is another thing entirely. And of course, the corollary of all of that is, is what's happening in Gaza now where with the Israelis massing on the border about to invade. They've told that the whole of Gaza City effectively has to evacuate to the Southern Strip. And you've got a, you know, a nightmare humanitarian situation, which may be relieved by the news this morning, Patrick, that the US has done a deal with Israel to allow humanitarian aid in. But, you know, let, let's see that actually beginning to flow before we feel that some of this, you know, if some of the opprobrium that will be heaped on Israel is allowed to dissipate by the deliberate protection of civilians. They are the ones who should not be harmed on either sides in this conflict, of course. 
Absolutely, but for, you know, from the very beginning, it's civilians who have probably, I, would, I don't know the exact statistics, I would hazard a guess that more civilians have died, many more civilians have died on both sides uh, since this all began more than 100 years ago than have actual bona fide soldiers. Uh, and this is, like I say, it's a, it's a cycle of uh, attack and reprisal, attack reprisal that we've seen all along. So both sides demand our sympathy, don't they? So they say, we're right and the other side are wrong. And there's been a process, I'm afraid, of both sides kind of demonizing their opponents and demanding your utter support. So if you stand back and say, well, look, you know, clearly this has got to end someday. And the first thing that's got to stop is people immediately grabbing you by the lapels and saying, you've got, look, 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 this is our point of view. And if you don't support our point of view, then you're somehow our enemy. That has all got to stop if there's any, ever going to be any chance of peace. But I digress. Um, yeah, uh, well, it's it's very, very good news about, well, it, potentially good news about the civilian conflict. And I think the Israelis have reacted very smartly to the idea that this could all go horribly wrong. And it's good to see that they're, they're listening because tempers, of course, are extremely high in, in Israel with very, very good reason. And uh, so let's hope that's a positive development. Um, before we move on, I just want to say, uh, we're probably coming towards the end now, that just on the, on the um, Stern story, there's a movie that's just come out called Shoshana, by Michael, directed by Michael Winterbottom, which is pre- precisely about what I've just been talking about. It's about the hunt for, for uh, Abraham Stern. And the title comes from the fact, now this is an interesting detail, uh, it's the name of um, a lady called Shoshana Borokov, who uh, was the daughter of a very prominent Zionist family in Israel, and she was the lover of a British detective called Thomas Wilkin. Uh, so you had all these kind of very unlikely alliances in during the period of the mandate, when you would expect, you know, the British essentially being the enemies, that it would be a, a bit of an, a star-crossed romance, which indeed it was. Tom Wilkin ended up being shot dead by one of uh, Stern's men, even though Stern was killed in 942. He was more powerful, actually, in death than he was in life, and so he created this legend uh, and became a sort of inspirational figure to these, uh, you know, the zealots that, that followed him. One of them gunned down Tom Wilkin in Jerusalem in, I think, 1944. We should quickly add, Patrick, um, that we have zero sympathy for Hamas as an organization, it, as a terrorist organization. It's been sanctioned by the British government as such. It, it uses terror against non-combatants to achieve political aims, and that strikes me as a terrorist organisation. Okay, let's move on to some response from listeners. Uh, and the first one's an interesting email, uh, a bit of a mea culpa from us uh, in response to this, from David Deswerak in Canada. And he says he loves the podcast, but he's got a number of points to make about our Gaza special last week which he says we made a number of misleading points. Here's the first one. Israel, the people and its government, are fully on Ukraine's side. We are not friends of Russia. However, and this is interesting, we do have an important military reliance on Russia due to a working arrangement with hotlines permitting Israel aircraft full reign to attack Syria and Hezbollah, IRGC, that's the uh, Revolutionary Guards in, uh, in Iran, and Iranian supply lines without Russian interference. Very interesting, didn't know that. This even survived the incident in 2018 when a Russian IL-20 was shot down by a Syrian S-200 missile with Israeli F-16s in the area. This arrangement is especially critical, he writes, trying to ensure that we are not attacked from the north. I live in the Galilee, about 50 kilometers west of the Syrian border and 20 kilometers south 
of the Lebanese. We cannot risk this arrangement and therefore have not provided lethal weapons to Ukraine. However, we do assist in other ways. At the start of the war, we sent a full field hospital with staff to Ukraine and have since also provided technology to assist their anti-drone defense. At the UN, we tend to abstain. However, this is due to Ukraine's record in voting for anti-Israel resolutions. He goes on to say the Russian community in Israel is mostly on Ukraine's side and not friends of Russia. Israel had an amazingly large immigration from the former Soviet Union between 1989 to 1994, which is ongoing at a lower scale. They make up about 15% of the Israeli population. A large portion of these Russians, in inverted commas, are actually from the Ukraine. Most of the people came to Israel not only to leave communism and its aftermath, but the ingrained anti-Semitism and totalitarianism, the latter continuing under, under Putin, and to join a free democratic society. And the last point he makes, and this is even more fascinating to me, in the opposite direction, Putin has a personal emotional tie to the Jews and to Israel. He's very supportive of the Jewish community inside Russia, maintaining close relationships with its leaders and rabbis. Internationally, he has protected and assisted Israel, even against his ally Assad, as can be shown above. And he gives various links for us to check all this out. According to biographers and pundits, this is perhaps due to his emotional ties as a child to a Jewish family who watched over him in his St. Petersburg tenement. Another interesting point is his respect for his high school German teacher who moved to Israel in 1973. You know, he goes on to say he also admired his high school wrestling coach, also Jewish. Thanks so much for that, David. That's all fascinating stuff. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's sort of quite strange to hear of this sort of softer side of Vladimir Putin, but uh, clearly <laughs> it, it does exist. Anyway, that's brilliant. Thanks very much for that, David. We've got a query here from Thomas in Stockholm, Sweden. And once again, uh, thank you very much for your praise, Thomas. Mustn't let it go to a head sore. Uh, he says, thanks for the war in Israel special. It'd be great if you could have one Ukraine episode and one Israel episode each week just for a few weeks while things develop. Well, I think that's a, a good idea. We're wrestling with how, how a kind of format for doing that in, but that's certainly our intention. This is a massively important war. It's got the intention of the, of the world, and it's obviously going to be very significant for you know global developments generally. So we're, we're, we will be figuring a way out of doing that, Thomas. Okay, a question from Gripper. I'm sure I'm just stupid, but if, and he goes on to say, Iran, we are told, supplied Hamas, they have already supplied the Russians with drones, so surely Hamas has a stockpile of the same. I ask because if, as at present assumed, the IDF plan an armor-heavy infiltration of Gaza, is this going to produce a target-rich environment? Does operation of these drones over very short guidance control ranges in the urban concrete environment degrade the IDF electric warfare capability needed to circumvent this threat? Appropriate scenario, slightly fanciful, but do you have any answers? Well, it's it's a very good question, and I suspect. Well, I mean, we already know from what we've seen of the Hamas operations out of Gaza that they are using drones, so they definitely have drones. And will these be a threat to uh, Israeli armor? They certainly will be. But what's interesting about Israeli armor? I was reading an article about this recently, Patrick, is that it has very good protection systems. Now, I'm not just talking about its you know its ability to absorb the impact of missiles, but it has an ability to actually intercept these missiles as they're coming in. It's got an extraordinary piece of kit that both the Americans and the British are now developing. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but effectively it, it has an all-round radar 
that can see these threats before they come, and it has various countermeasures to to be able to deal with it. So these Israeli tanks, with this bit of kit, which de- which was developed in Israel, and as I say, is being shared with the with the rest of the Western world, are as good at dealing with the sort of threats from drones and also anti-tank uh, missiles as anything in the world. So. I suspect uh, that is playing a large part in their decision to use tanks, if indeed they do use tanks. And of course, if they actually go in on the ground, that will almost certainly be the case. They also have very effective armoured bulldozers, apparently. Okay, well, that's enough of us for this special Wednesday edition uh, on Gaza. We'll be back on Friday and Gaza will again be on the menu, but we'll also be looking at what's going on in Ukraine, which after all is the day job. Do join us then. Goodbye. Goodbye.